Bioneer's Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at OrganicValley.com. Welcome to the Bioneer's Revolution from the Heart of Nature. I look back on the life of Abraham Lincoln, whose portrait hangs in every schoolroom in Illinois, and marvel that our economy was once dependent on slave labor unthinkable. I believe our grandchildren will look back on us now and marvel that our economy was once dependent on chemicals that were killing the planet and killing ourselves, and they will think of it as unthinkable. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. We stand at the threshold of a historic opportunity in the human experiment to reimagine how to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. It's a revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we celebrate social and scientific innovators with breakthrough solutions for restoring people and planet, creating a future environment of hope. If anyone questioned the existence of extreme environmental inequities of class and race in the United States, Hurricane Katrina blew that illusion away. The natural disaster revealed a second disaster in slow motion, the everyday chronic reality that communities where low-income people and people of color live often face qualitatively greater environmental hazards. But Katrina nakedly revealed that low-income people and people of color are not the only environmental canaries in the coal mine. Even the well-off can't insulate themselves from this now universal riskscape. Like emergency first responders, rights-based environmental justice movements are rising around the world, tirelessly organizing to change the systems that generate Category 5 storms of poison and injustice. These movements are some of the most profoundly hopeful developments of our era. And as biologist and author Sandra Steingraber eloquently shows, our toxic chemical-dependent society will become unthinkable in years to come. Join us for Becoming a Habitat, Motherhood, Faith, and the Environmental Human Rights Movement with Sandra Steingraber. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature. ago, in between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was diagnosed with bladder cancer. Those are amazing words to say at a podium. Thirty years ago, I had cancer. I had just turned 20. I was hoping I would live long enough to have sex with someone. I hadn't done that yet. I could not have imagined, while lying in my hospital bed, exhaling anesthesia, that someday I would stand before an audience of thousands and say, 30 years ago, I had cancer. Unbelievable. Sandra Steingraber is not only a cancer survivor, but also a biologist, poet, and mother. She's the award-winning author of two classic, highly influential books, 
living downstream, an ecologist looks at cancer and environment, and having faith, an ecologist's journey into motherhood. Steingraber embodies the notion of chemical trespass, the fact that Americans are not safe from toxic chemicals at home, in the workplace, or even in our own bodies because of the products our society makes and we all use every day. She spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. Thirty years ago, I had cancer. Soon after I left the hospital, I went back to the university, resumed my life as a biology major, and began mucking around in the medical literature. I did find someone to have sex with. That didn't take long. (laughs) It also didn't take long for me to learn that bladder cancer is considered a quintessential environmental cancer, meaning we have more evidence for a link between toxic chemical exposures and bladder cancer risk than for almost any other kind of cancer with data going back more than 100 years. I discovered that the identification of bladder carcinogens does not preclude their ongoing use in commerce, just because through careful scientific study, we learn that a chemical causes cancer doesn't mean we ban it from the marketplace. I also discovered that in spite of all this evidence, the word carcinogen and the word environment rarely appeared in the pamphlets on cancer in my doctor's offices and waiting rooms, nor were these words used much in conversations I had with my various healthcare providers who were interested instead in my family medical history. I was happy enough to provide it. There is a lot of cancer in my family. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 44. I have uncles with colon cancer, prostate cancer, stromal tumor. I have an aunt who died of the same kind of bladder cancer, transitional cell carcinoma that I had. But here's the punchline to my family story. I'm adopted. I'm not related to my family by chromosomes. So I began to ask hard questions about the presumption that what runs in families necessarily runs in genes. I began to ask, what else do families have in common? Maybe drinking water wells. And when I looked at the literature on cancer among adult adoptees, I learned that, in fact, the chance of an adopted person dying of cancer is far more closely related to whether or not her adoptive parents had died of cancer than whether or not her biological parents had met this fate. But you would never know that based on the questions asked on medical intake forms. So 30 years ago, as a college undergraduate, I made a bet I bet that my cancer diagnosis had something to do with the environment in which I lived as a child. And I think I was right about this. As I learned years later, while researching my book Living Downstream, the county where I grew up along the east bluff of the Illinois River has statistically elevated cancer rates. Three dozen different industries line the river valley there, and farmers practice pesticide-intensive agriculture. Hazardous waste is imported as far away as New Jersey, and the drinking water wells contain traces of both farm chemicals and industrial chemicals, including those with demonstrable links to bladder cancer. Twenty years ago, I made another bet. I worked as an opinion writer at the Michigan Daily, the student newspaper there. My editor and I laid bets as to which system would collapse first, economy or ecology. I said ecology. I think I was wrong. I think we were both wrong. They seemed to be crumbling simultaneously. 
Our economy and our ecology have in common, it seems to me, a number of attributes. Both are complex, globalized systems whose interconnections are little understood until something goes wrong. Here's a key difference, though. For one of our two ecosystems, we are engaged in drastic and unprecedented measures to rescue it, even though no one seems to understand it very well. And as for our other ecosystem, well, it's considered too depressing and overwhelming to even talk about. As the infamous hub of chemical production called Cancer Alley, nearly 80% of New Orleans was saturated by Katrina's floodwaters, carrying a toxic gumbo from oil refineries, chemical plants, and farm fields. The catastrophe ripped the roof off a thoroughly toxic, misbegotten industrial system that in fact is pervasive almost everywhere. To add injury to injury, many displaced Katrina survivors ended up living in toxic FEMA trailers made with deadly formaldehyde, manufactured in China. Even the Chinese don't use them. They just export them. In the 33 years since the Federal Toxic Substances Control Act was passed, tens of thousands of new chemicals have been produced and used in the United States. But under the law, the EPA has been able to require testing of just a few hundred of them. The rest, including formaldehyde, are uncontrollable by law. We're all New Orleanians, and our collective vulnerability is increasing. Asthma is epidemic. Cancer is now the leading killer of middle-aged adults. Infertility rates are up, while sperm counts are down. Homes, drinking water, and most disturbingly, even a mother's breast milk contains hundreds of toxic chemicals. Again, Sandra Steingraber. Our current environmental regulatory apparatus does not require rigorous toxicological testing of chemicals as a precondition for marketing them, as we do, for example, for pharmaceuticals. It also makes it very difficult to ban chemicals once they are in commerce. Of the 80,000 synthetic chemicals now in the market, exactly five have been outlawed under the Toxic Substances Control Act since 1976. And to learn more about the history of this law, I commend to you the very good book, Exposed, by investigative journalist Mark Shapiro. Our current environmental regulatory apparatus allows economic benefits to be balanced against human health risks. It fails to take into account the fact that we are all exposed, to use Rachel Carson's words, to a changing kaleidoscope of chemicals over our lifetimes, and not just one chemical at a time. In umbilical cord blood alone, 287 different chemicals have been detected. These include pesticides, stain removers, wood preservatives, mercury, and flame retardants. Our current regulatory apparatus does not take into account timing of exposure. And yet, science clearly shows that toxic exposures during key moments of infant and child development, especially during the opera of embryonic development during pregnancy, raises risks for harm that are disproportionate to dose. Benzoapyrene, an ingredient in tobacco smoke, diesel exhaust, and soot, can damage eggs in the ovaries of mammals in a way that may reduce fertility. Exposure to pesticides in men can reduce sperm count. Thus, our environmental policies may be influencing our very ability to get pregnant and have children. And if pregnancy is achieved, exposure to certain chemicals raises the risk that it will be lost through miscarriage, or what we in the scientific community call spontaneous abortion. Evidence suggests that the pesticide methoxychlor has this power, as do certain chemical solvents. 
And here is where I am interested in engaging the pro-life community in a dialogue, because whether you see this as a problem, as I do, as a violation of women's reproductive rights, or whether you see this as a problem, as some members of my family do, as a violation of fetal sanctity, maybe we can all agree, pro-life and pro-choice, that any chemical with the power to extinguish a human pregnancy has no rightful place in our economy. When toxic chemicals enter the story of human development during the fifth and sixth months of pregnancy, when the brain is just getting itself knitted together, the risk may be a learning or developmental disability. Of the 3,000 chemicals produced in high volume in the United States, 200 of these are neurotoxicants, and another 1,000 are suspected of affecting the nervous system. Some chemicals, such as PCBs, have the power to shorten human gestation and so raise the risk for premature birth, which is the leading cause of disability in this country. Some chemicals raise the risk for pediatric cancers, which are rising more rapidly than cancers among adults. Some chemicals can raise the risk for early puberty in girls, which in turn raises the risk for breast cancer in adulthood. The dangers persist in the environment and our bodies long after chemicals are banned or discontinued. PCBs were one of the five chemicals banned under the Toxic Substances Control Act, or TOSCA, of 1976. Yet they persist and bioaccumulate they build up in our bodies over time. Eighteen years ago, under Tosca, the EPA tried to control asbestos. They failed because the asbestos lobby throttled the effort. The EPA hasn't tried to ban any chemicals since then. Yet even the chemical industry now admits that Tosca is behind the times. There have been advances in the field of green chemistry and new damning research about chemical risks that show that even very small quantities can cause big harms. But federal laws haven't kept up with the science. Ten years ago, there were a few studies on bisphenol A, a popular chemical in baby bottles and plastic food and beverage containers. New research has linked this chemical to cancer, heart disease, obesity, infertility, and hyperactivity. It's been banned piecemeal at the state and city levels and by retailers like Walmart and manufacturers, but not by federal law, not by Tosca. In testimony at the December 2009 oversight hearing on Tosca, EPA Administrator Lisa Jackson admitted that the outdated law, quote, does not provide the tools to adequately protect human health and the environment as the American people expect, demand, and deserve, unquote. And she outlined the federal administration's goals for legislative reform. A growing grassroots coalition of community and professional organizations called Safer Chemicals Healthy Families is working with Congress to help repair what everyone agrees is a broken chemical management system. When we return, more on what's being done to address chemical trespass as Sandra Steingraber takes this very public issue back to a very personal level. This is Becoming a Habitat, Motherhood, Faith, and the Environmental Human Rights Movement. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature.
You can download this and other programs on the radio pages at Bioneers.org. Despite all her knowledge about the realities of chemical trespass, Sandra Steingraber still found the courage to become a mother. Here is the next chapter in her personal journey of cancer survival. A few weeks ago, on a sunny afternoon, the phone rang while I was trying to meet a writing deadline. It was the nurse in my urologist's office. She was calling to say the pathologist had found in the urine collected from my last cystoscopic checkup abnormal cell clusters and also blood. After I hung up, I looked out the window of my small house where the sun still shone on the last of the marigolds and the tomato vines. I looked down at my computer screen where the cursor still blinked on the same paragraph. I could hear in the kitchen the tomatoes still bobbing around in the stock pot that was steaming away on the stove. The world was still the same, but it felt to me suddenly altered. Or was it? I provided a second urine sample for further testing, and based on the results of that, a third sample was set out for genetic analysis. Two days ago, I got the call from the urology nurse. The results were normal. So what am I trying to say here? Are you fine or not, Sandra? What's the end of the story? Well, I don't know. I am living within a period of time known as watchful waiting. Much of my adult life has been watchful waiting. Watch means vigilance, screening tests, imaging, blood work, self-advocacy, second opinions, and hours logged in hospital parking garages. Wait means you go back to your half-finished essay to the tomatoes on the stove. You lay plans and carry on within the confines of ambiguity. You meet deadlines and make grocery lists, and sometimes you jump when the phone rings on a sunny afternoon. Ten years ago in the fall of 1998, I gave birth to a child. I became a cancer patient at 20 and the mother at the brink of 40, which I know isn't how most people's lives are ordered, but that's how mine worked out. After 20 years as a solitary adult ecologist, I became a habitat. An inland ocean. An inland ocean with a marine mammal swimming around inside of me. I became a water cycle, a food chain, a jet stream. My daughter's name is Faith. She is 10 years old, and my son's name is Elijah, and he is 7. My son is named for the abolitionist Elijah Lovejoy, who hails from my home state of Illinois. I'll leave it to you to imagine why an adopted cancer survivor might name a daughter Faith. My daughter is planning a career as a marine biologist. She wants to write her first book on the octopus. My son wishes to be the president, a farmer, or a member of the Beatles. <laughs> he figures there are at least two job openings there already. <laughs> Since becoming a mother, I've made another bet. I am betting that in between my children's adult lives and my own, an environmental human rights movement will arise. It's one whose seeds have already been sown, and it's one with a dual focus. First, the environmental human rights movement will take up with urgency the task of rescue and repair of our ecological system upon which all of life depends. It is a movement that will recognize the truth of the following statement, quote, 
Nothing is more important to human beings than an ecologically functioning, life-sustaining biosphere on Earth. We cannot live long or well without a functioning biosphere, and so it is worth everything we have, unquote. These are the opening sentences of a powerful new manifesto, Law for the Ecological Age, authored by attorney and biochemist Joseph Guth and published in the Vermont Journal of Environmental Law. I commend it to you. At the same time, this environmental human rights movement will take up with equal fervor the task of divorcing our economy from its current dependencies on chemical toxicants that are known to trespass inside our bodies without our consent, thus violating, as some have argued, our security of person. Sandra Steingraber points to new coalitions that are weaving together political work, personal stories, and scientific research into an unstoppable movement for environmental justice. She says we face two mutually exclusive choices for how we design our society and relate to risk. The current market-based system sets, quote, acceptable societal risk levels of poisoning and peril. A market-based approach to risk says money talks, and if you don't have it, you're on your own. A contrary rights-based approach relies on prevention and precaution, safety first, and puts the burden of proof of safety on polluters instead of on society. It mandates environmental justice, the right to a clean and safe environment for everyone. In April 2010, the House and Senate introduced landmark legislation on chemical management reform to strengthen the Toxic Substances Control Act. Government officials and citizen advocates say such reforms would give the EPA the muscle it needs to take action to protect public health and the environment. Such laws would enforce safety standards and encourage green chemistry solutions. And that would have big commercial advantages. Companies would dramatically lessen their risk and liability because green chemistry solutions eliminate the toxic harm in the first place. The European Union is already leading the chemical industry in this direction. As these changes inevitably occur, Sandra Steingraber will be ready to place her wager on that winning ticket. So I am betting that chemical reform will be a cornerstone of this new environmental human rights movement that I see getting underway. I am betting that my children and the generation of children that they are a part will, by the time they are my age, they'll consider it unthinkable to allow cancer-causing chemicals, reproductive toxicants, and neurological poisons to freely circulate in our economy. They will find it unthinkable to assume an attitude of silence and willful ignorance about our ecology. In the same way that I look back on the life of Rachel Carson, my mentor in all this, who died when I was five years old, and I find it unthinkable that she could not speak about her own cancer diagnosis, even while dying, as I have spoken about my diagnosis with you today. Thirty years of feminism lies between my life as an adult scientist and Rachel Carson's, and that human rights movement, feminism, ended the silence around the personal experience of women's cancer so that I have never had to fear, as did Carson, that my status as a cancer survivor will be somehow used to impeach my science. And in the same way, I look back on the life of Abraham Lincoln, whose portrait hangs in every schoolroom in Illinois, and marvel that our economy was once dependent on slave labor. 
unthinkable. I believe our grandchildren will look back on us now and marvel that our economy was once dependent on chemicals that were killing the planet and killing ourselves, and they will think of it as unthinkable. Now, I am willing to concede the point that this environmental human rights movement that I am betting on is less an evidence-based prediction than a mother's fervent hope that my children will never have to fear the phone ringing on a Sunday afternoon and it's bringing bad news from the pathology lab. I am willing to admit that this bet is a wish that my children will grow up in a world with a functioning jet stream and some ice caps and a few coral reefs and some octopi for my daughter to write her first book about and some honeybees to help my son, the farmer, grow some apples. It's a wish that his polar bear Halloween costume not outlast the species. Wishful or not, I am not willing to be wrong about this bet because my children's lives are inextricably bound to the abiding ecology of this planet, which is worth everything I have. An environmental human rights movement is the vision under which I labor, from which I am not free to desist, and which may, if we all work together in concert, become a self-fulfilling prophecy. May it be so. Sandra Steingraber, scientist, citizen, mother, betting everything she has for her children's future and a healthy planet for all people and all life. Becoming a Habitat, Motherhood, Faith, and the Environmental Human Rights Movement. Downloads of this program and many other Bioneers radio shows are available on the radio pages at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. That's 1-877-246-6337. Visit Bioneers.org where you can learn how to attend the annual October Bioneers National Conference and local beaming Bioneers conferences. Purchase the radio series, conference CDs and DVDs, and Bioneers books. Join the thriving online Bioneers community and become a Bioneers member or make a donation. All at Bioneers.org or by calling 1-877-BIONEER. The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Catherine Stifter and Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production management, Aaron Leventman and Chuck Castleberry. Station relations by Creative PR. Distribution is by WFMT Radio Network. Original recordings were provided by Focus Audiovisual and our interview recording engineer, Jeff Westman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Rykodisc label. Additional music was made available by Acoustic Music Records at www.acoustic-music.de. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening.
I invite you to join the Bioneers in inspiring a shift to live on Earth in ways that honor the web of life, each other, and future generations. This is program number 0210. Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is made possible in part by Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative producing local food with the future in mind since 1988. Learn more at OrganicValley.com.